Why don't we begin our sermon with prayer? We pray, uh, dear God, thank you for bringing us here today. And whatever we are bringing with us from this past week, whatever we are thinking about for the next week, whatever tiredness we might be feeling or anything else, please be with us, continue to be with us this morning as we spend time in your word. And bless our time digging into Psalm 90. Use your word, send your Holy Spirit to make us wise for salvation in our Savior and also to make us wise for the way that we live for you during the days and hours and minutes that we have in this world. Bless our time in your word this morning. Make it rich and productive for each one of our faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Living on borrowed time. Have you heard that phrase? What does it, what does it mean? That's not rhetorical. I'll actually just wait and... What, what does it mean to be living on borrowed time? Our time is not our own. Um, what situations would you maybe hear this where you're like, that person, man, they're living on borrowed time at this point. I think it's maybe like a, a health issue, right? Where somebody's got a, a serious illness. Maybe it's a terminal illness. And they've, they've made it past the lifespan that they were supposed to make it past. And, like, they're way past it. And they're like, well, they're, like, they're playing with house money. Like, they're, you know, they're, they're living on borrowed time. So maybe the doctors gave them two months to live. And then they got to two and then four and then six. And now they're pushing a year. You're like, this person's living on borrowed time. So the idea is they're still sick. Like, eventually this disease is going to end their life. But somehow they just keep rolling. Somehow they just keep waking up and getting another day and some more time. And, and so that time, like after you've surpassed what you're supposed to have, that time feels especially precious, doesn't it? Every single second of that borrowed time feels like a gift. So you get, you get that concept. Let me ask you this question now. And this one, this one is rhetorical. This is just something for you to think about. Um, how would you feel if you knew right now that you were living on borrowed time? How would you feel or how would you live or how would you approach your day if you knew that your life was coming to an end probably pretty soon and yet somehow you just keep waking up every day and getting another 24 hours as, as a gift? How would you feel if that was your situation? Well, if you were paying attention to our first reading this morning, maybe you can tell where this is going. This is your situation. This is the situation that all of us are in as human beings living in a sin-broken world we are living on borrowed time. We know that eventually we're going to die because every single person does. We know that we don't have to get old and sick in order to die either because thousands of young, healthy people die every single day from all kinds of different reasons. And we get reminded of this as things happen in our life. Maybe we see our parents aging Maybe we see our friends developing like a serious long-term health issue. Maybe we lose a friend. They've passed away. And we are reminded that life in this world is not an infinite resource. Or, or we see some tragedy that happens in the news. Innocent bystanders are killed. And we realize life in this world is not an infinite resource. Time in this world is limited. It's a very ominous picture, but you think of like this hourglass with the grains of sand. But this is what it's like, is we have a finite amount of time, and every day and every minute, it's, it's passing away. And so this is kind of the, uh, 
situation, but the great irony of human behavior, which we're going to be talking about the next several weeks, is that even though we know our time is limited, we act as though it is not. Even though we know we're going to die at some point, could be soon, we act sometimes like we're going to live forever. And so we spend our limited time on things that are really foolish and unproductive, and we fail to spend our limited time on the things and on the people that really matter. Why do we do this? <laughs> what is our deal? Um, these are the types of questions that Moses starts to address in Psalm 90. So we've talked about this already. One of the reasons this psalm is so cool is because it's so incredibly old. It's 1500 BC. This is when like alphabetic writing had just been invented. And Moses sits down and writes this psalm about the plight of the human condition. And it's just stunning how exactly it translates to our day and to our time. Um, people still had the same two problems back then that they do now. The problem of a limited lifespan and the problem of limited wisdom with which to use that lifespan. And so we do these ridiculously foolish things with the short amount of time that we have. So as Moses gets into this topic in Psalm 90, he zooms out even further. He goes back even further, all the way to the description of a God who stands completely outside of human time. And so here's how Moses leads off. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So, of course, this is a fundamental truth about God. It's the idea that God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He always has existed, and he is always going to exist. Can we logically understand a concept like that? Of course we can't. But we can logically understand the need for a God like that. You think this through. The very fact that our universe exists is a very strong hint that someone must have made it. And then the complexity of our universe is a hint that that someone must be very, very wise. And the immensity of our universe is a hint that that someone must be very, very strong. So it stands to reason that if a massive, incredible universe was created in the first place, it must have an even more massive, even more powerful creator. A God who stands above and outside of human time. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So this is good to know, and this is cool to think about. It kind of gives you a headache if you think about it a little too long or too hard, but you look up at the stars and the sky, the vastness of the cosmos, and wow, God is eternal. God is really, really big. But here probably is the more important question. How is this eternal, gigantic God going to to treat us. How does this eternal, gigantic God feel about me? Well, Moses gets right into it 3,500 years ago. Moses doesn't pull any punches as he describes God's relationship with people and what it looks like, at least initially, from our perspective here on earth. How does God treat people? Well, Moses says, God, you turn people back to dust saying, return to dust, you mortals, and you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning, which pops up and then withers by the end of the day. So we have this almighty God who's been around forever. He creates this universe for people to live, and he puts people in it, and then how does he treat those people? Well, he starts letting them die. 
and he lets each generation fall off before they really even get going. Why would God do this? Well, Moses continues in verse 7 and 8. He tells us the answer. He says, we are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. And so we think of ourselves, and we think of our life and we say, okay, well, this is why. <laughs> because God can see our sins. Every last dirty, shameful, secret, hidden sin is not hidden to God. He can see them all. And so in our second reading today, we heard all about, we just talked with the kids all about what sin has done and that disconnect that sin has created between mankind and the God who made us. So that reading that we read, it came from the early chapters of Genesis. I think we hinted about this with the kids, that the early chapters of the Bible are like this roller coaster ride. Uh, because at first, God designs this world that's absolutely flawless, and then he makes people who are perfect and powerful, and they're going to live there forever. And we start thinking eternal life in a perfect world. How cool would that be? In fact, that's been the plot of probably most of the cool adventure stories over the history of the world. The ancient Greeks had this myth of people trying to find golden apples, which would give them immortality and eternal life. More recently, a book was written about plane crash survivors who found some monastery called Shangri-La, which was like paradise on earth. Uh, or you've got Ponce de Leon, who spent his whole life trying to find supposedly the fountain of youth. And these kinds of things sound awesome. If you could eat something, if you could drink something, it would make you live forever. I was actually just reading a book about science and technology and medicine, and there are people who are hoping, it really feels wishful to me, that maybe within the next 30, 40 years, we'll find a way to be able to live forever, scientifically, medically. Okay. But this sounds really cool. This is what we all want, eternal life, especially in a perfect world. But sadly, in the real world, we face a very different story. And it's because of this event that happened in the Garden of Eden. And we've talked through the details. Uh, a snake and a tree and a mouthful of forbidden fruit, which probably was not an apple, but that was the best, you know, bite out of a fruit picture that I could find. And then we know the results. The results is not just that Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, but the results of sin, the wages of sin, were ultimately death. God had made Adam from the ground and breathed life into him. And now God says to him, dust you are and to dust you will return. Human beings would no longer live forever. So now as you keep reading through the book of Genesis, you start to see this taking place. You start to have the generations being listed. And initially, people are incredibly healthy and strong. They just came off perfection. There's no genetic flaws, so they live for a while. People live for hundreds of years. But lifespans start to go down very quickly. After the flood, lifespans start to plummet. And finally, by the time of Moses, 3,500 years ago, the human lifespan sounds exactly like the human lifespan today. How long do we make it, Moses says. 70 years, or 80, possibly, if our strength endures. And that's it. So again, summing up, here's the situation that we've found ourselves in. We live in this world whose run, the world is run by an eternal God. To him, a thousand years are just like a day. And God made this place perfect, and he made us to live forever. And yet we don't, not anymore, because of our sin. 
Now, because of our sin, the human lifespan is shortened and capped. Our days pass quickly, and then we fly away. Given the situation that we're in, you would think that as the grains of sand of our life are ticking down, that we would embrace every one, and we would, because it's limited, we would be as wise as possible with our time. But ironically, we're not. And ironically, when the lifespan has been shortened, we wasted even more than they did at the beginning. We live very foolishly. We act like we have unlimited time, even though we don't. And this, too, is a symptom of sin. Like that sin attitude in our heart, it didn't just shorten our life. It also corrupted the way that we live our life. It's corrupted us, and so it's not only created the way that we die, it's also messed up the way that we live. So, Moses' point in most of this psalm is that we're stuck in this vicious cycle. Every new generation is like the new grass of the morning. It springs up green and bright, and by evening time, it's dry and withered. So, you read through this psalm, you get 12 verses in, you stop and get a drink of coffee because you're starting to get depressed. It's just bad news, bad news, the vicious cycle, human life is terrible. Is there any good news that could happen at all? Well, there is. And Moses breaks into that good news in verse 13 and 14. Here's what he says. Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love. Now, if you were able to join us for the previous sermon series, maybe you remember these words. We talked about compassion, and we talked about unfailing love, and we did this kid's message where we tried to create a line that if you measured it, you could never get to the end to. And we tried to imagine like a bucket that had no bottom, and no matter how deep you went, you'd never get to the bottom. And we're saying, this is how big God is. God has no end. God is eternal. But the whole like secret of the Bible that's, that's a mystery and beautiful to us is that that's also how big God's love is. That God's love for us has no end. That God's love for us has no bottom. And so despite this situation of sin that we find ourselves in, God will not leave us here. God will not let us go because his unfailing love has to reach out and rescue us and save us. And so God's love for mankind was so great and so vast that it's even been able to overcome our rebellion against God. And that's really the story of the whole Bible. It's the story of God's plan to rescue us. It's the story of how God, who's eternal in heaven, he sends his son to the world, and Jesus Christ comes into finite time and lives a perfect life that's limited, that's short. He only made it to 33 years, and he does it perfectly to replace our flawed and foolish lives. And then the whole Bible is building up to this point, to the day that Jesus dies on the cross and with his perfect blood pays the price for all of our sins. And then three days later, he rises from the grave and he conquers death. He goes into a grave dead and he comes out alive. And then he goes to heaven triumphantly and victoriously, but the point is clear. What happened to Jesus is going to happen to us His story is now our story. When we die someday, through faith in Jesus, we will rise. Because Jesus broke the cycle. Every generation grows up and it withers. It sins and it dies. And Jesus never sinned, and then he conquered death. And that now all is your story. You're part of that generation. You're part of Jesus' family. 
And so death for you is no longer what it would otherwise have been. And eternal life for you is now coming. On the day that you die, your soul gets to be with God in paradise and stay there forever. And then on the last day, your body, resurrected and glorified, gets to join you. And you get to live in a perfect garden, in a perfect paradise forever, just like we all want and wish and hope for and dream of. And so you see, because of what Jesus did on this finite mortal earth, what God has done is he's grabbed hold of finite mortal human beings and he's pulled us onto his timeline. He has made us eternal. Right? So now you can look back at that psalm. Like you could almost start over at the beginning and you have, well, God has been here forever and, and then here's the human plight in comparison. But we're not like this anymore. We are now part of God's timeline. We now are eternal. When we get to heaven, a thousand years is going to be just like a day. We now have unlimited time, eventually. So, how does all of that affect our limited time that is still going on on planet Earth? I don't want to steal any thunder from future sermons. Uh, so to end Psalm 90 here, we'll close with just two key points about the Christian view of time. And this is setting up all the things we're going to talk about through August and September. The first point is this. As a Christian, you know that you have an eternity of time waiting for you in heaven. Whatever's going on in your life, you know you have this waiting for you. And, and we're used to this as Christians. We talk about this all the time. But this is huge. This is amazing that you have this in your back pocket and you know where you're going and you know how long that you'll be there. Do you realize how much that sets you free from pressure? Pressure of looking at your hourglass and seeing the grains of sand go by and stressing out that you haven't used every possible second and how can you fit it all in and how do you know how much time you have and you can relax from that pressure. You can relax from that line of thinking because you have an eternity of time that's waiting for you in heaven. You are going to have plenty of hours and minutes and years and decades in heaven. And this is really important when it comes to the topic of, like, regret. There are things in life that people have deep regrets about. People say things like this, I wish I had spent more time with my grandpa before he passed away. I wish that I had made better financial decisions in my 20s because 30 years later, I still am not where I could have been if I had just done things differently. I wish that I had taken full advantage of my health and strength while I had them because now all of a sudden I'm not healthy. Now all of a sudden I'm not strong. I can't do those things anymore. I wish I could have used that time the way that I wanted to. I wish, and you just fill in the blank, but our world is full of regrets and feeling like we've lost time and lost opportunities, but heaven sets us free from all of it. We have an eternity of time and opportunities in heaven, and that takes the pressure off. In heaven, we have endless time to talk with family members, right, regardless of how well we were able to do that here on earth. In heaven, we have endless wealth and resources, you know, regardless of how maybe poorly we managed our things here on this earth. In heaven, we have an eternity of strength and health, even if our life in this earth was full of sickness and pain. So again, this is in your back pocket as a Christian. No matter what happens to you, you have an endless happiness in a paradise of heaven, and that takes the pressure off that you've got to absolutely nail everything right here, right now. Does that make sense? 
But then flowing from that, here's our second key thought. As a Christian, instead of living foolishly for the moment, you can wisely and thoughtfully embrace your limited time on this earth. And Moses summed this up in verse 12 of our text. He said, teach us to number our days so that we may gain hearts of wisdom. Number our days so we can gain hearts of wisdom. So, speaking of wisdom, have you ever noticed that in our world, people are relatively afraid to talk about death? At least in a serious way. We'll watch movies where tons of bad guys are getting gunned down. We'll defeat our enemies in video games. People joke about death. People have graveyard humor or gallows humor or dark sense of humor. People try to laugh about death because what else are you going to do about it? But the thing people don't do about it is spend a lot of time really deeply thinking about the fact that one day I am going to die. And the reason they don't is because it's terrifying and it's unavoidable, and it's scary, so it just feels easier to avoid the whole topic. But as a Christian, you don't have to. You can be real about what your situation is. You can be real about the shortness of life on this earth, because you also can be real about the eternity of life that's coming in heaven. And so instead of, you know, putting your fingers in your ears and saying, blah, 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 I can't hear you, instead of covering your eyes and trying to never look at anything about death, you can be real and say, my time is limited but I'm going to use it as best as I can because I have this unlimited eternity of time in my back pocket. So with that pressure off, with the hope of heaven, now we are dialed in to approach our limited time on this earth and say, I want to spend this time on things that are important. Things like giving praise to God. As Moses says, satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Things like passing God's word on to others. As Moses says, may your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. Things like serving God in everything you do. As Moses says, may the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Right here, right now, as we make the best use we can of the limited time we have in this world. So, living on borrowed time, that's a statement that could make us very uneasy. It's a statement that would fill us with fear as we think about the shortness of life until we realize the eternity of heaven that Jesus has won for us. And now the idea of living on borrowed time fills us with a very different feeling. It fills us with hope. It fills us with excitement. It fills us with energy. Because we are going to have all of the time to enjoy so many things in heaven, but whatever years we have left in this world are a very unique gift. Because this is the time when we're not there yet. This is the time when the world's still broken. This is the time when we can still interact with people who do not have the hope that God provides. And for you and for me, how many days it may be, this is our time. This is our time to shine to shine God's light into our world. And so I pray that God would use this sermon series and this study of time to make us wise and to make us productive and to make us really, really excited about attacking the time that God has given to us so that we can gain hearts of wisdom and so that we can be a tremendous blessing to the people in our world around us. May God grant that to all of us. For Jesus' sake, amen. 
And now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.